so for equity, you know, we did a syndication with uh, high net worth investors, families, friends. I think we ended up with um, uh, 14 total investors, um, including me. Yeah, and actually, that's one thing that I'm uh, is really cool. We actually it ended up where everybody who worked here invested money in the deal mm -hmm. and a lot and so, some of them, their parents did. Yeah. You know, so then. Like that's really cool. I wouldn't, you know, I would have never thought that would have happened. And, um, you know, not, it's really says something about the deals where people are working on it or like the, you know, you're modeling the deal, you're doing it. And then you, and then the, you know, the guy sitting next to you is like, Hey, we should get like money in this and like get a share, you know? Um, and same thing with the, you know, just, so it's interesting to see where, um, yeah. So out of the 14 investors, I mean, you know, six, you know, five or so of those were the deal team, you know? So that's, um, you know, interesting to see play out. You know, I'm proud of that. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome back to the Rise and Invest podcast. I'm Drew Brenneman. We just closed a new deal this week, and so we wanted to hop on here and do a deep dive, talk about the deal and how everything went down. And so today joining me is Evan Dillon. He's the vice president at Rise Invest, and he was able to source this deal and take it soup to nuts on his own. So I wanted to get him on here and chat about it. Yep, soup to nuts. Good to be back on. Good to talk about the deal. And uh, my first deal uh, that I ran the whole process with you, so it was exciting, you know, some uh, minor mistakes along the way, but, you know, from initial underwriting to sourcing to PSA and LOI negotiation to the due diligence and closing process. It was a, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a learning experience and I think we got a good deal. So let's talk about it. Yeah, definitely. And I think maybe one thing before we dive into the deal, I just want to mention, I know it's actually, it's in the, in the outro, but I don't think I've ever actually talked about it on the podcast, but on our, on our website, if anybody's interested, we've got like a ton of, um, written resources. So if you're into more just, you know, reading something on your own. We've got a blog on there. Uh, and also we wrote a uh, kind of all of us at the company. I don't, I wouldn't want to say I wrote it uh, all the way. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, Evan wrote a huge chunk of it and so did a lot of the other people. A uh, hundred plus page guidebook um, that, I mean, even putting it together, I think even all of us learned something. Um, I know I did, but it's really geared towards, you know, passive investors kind of explaining what all these terms are and deals. And then, um, you know, just kind of what to look for in a sponsor, uh, there's, there's so a lot in it, obviously, if it's 100 plus pages. So if anyone's interested in that or, or our blog, it's all on our website. So you can go to it. It's riseinvest.com. And then also there you can sign up if you're interested in investing in our deals. You can sign up there as well. There's a button in the upper upper right. We can't miss it right there in orange that says mm -hmm. invest now. So you can sign up to be an investor. Just You're just putting your, your name in basically an email and a couple other pieces of info and then you get sent deals when they're available. Uh, and, you know, there's not always a deal available. So you might sign up and there's not anything to look at yet. We could send you like a past deal or something. But usually when we get it to a point like what we'll talk about here, once we have we know we're going to move forward with it, then we usually send it around. So that's how that's how it works. And then cool. Where do you want to 
start us off on on Huntington then, Evan. Yeah. Um, so the deal, 20 at Huntington, it's a 20 unit value add deal um, in Tempe, Arizona. Um, we purchased it, purchased it for uh, 5.7 million. And um, yeah, you know, the, the building was built around 1970, um, 20 units, like I said, uh, four, one bedroom, one bath units, and then 16 two bed, uh, one bathroom units. Um, we bought it from a, uh, we'll call it like a high net worth investor who um, has a little bit of a track record of doing these smaller deals, um, doing some renovations. And um, she did a, a really nice job with the renovations. I think, you know, out of the 20 units, about seven of them like re- received like a full cosmetic renovation, quartz countertops, vinyl flooring, you know, updated electrical and plumbing fixtures stainless steel appliances, you know, new paint, new tub and like new, uh, like tub tile surround. So, you know, it looked really good. Um, and then, you know, there were about, uh, 12 units that I guess we could call it, you know, partial renovation where this, uh, the seller, you know, may have done some renovations herself or the previous owner before her, you know, did some things where, you know, we had a mix of tile and vinyl flooring, um, Mostly older cabinets that were painted and then, you know, some new sinks with gooseneck faucets, um, you know, some backsplash, things like that. But um, and then, you know, one, I guess we'll call like classic unit or original unit where, you know, the countertops and floor and uh, cabinets and appliances, you know, it kind of looked like original with the building. So, you know, um, a nice, a nice mix of, you know, I guess meat on the bone left as we'll call it, where, you know, we can still come in and like add value, um, beyond just the, the units that were renovated. We have 13 units where we can add some value and do some renovations. Um, and then the seller, you know, they also did a nice job of like just cosmetic renovations on the exterior, you know, nice, um, modern, uh, paint, scheme with like white and charcoal and sage green, you know, really looks nice from like a curb appeal. And, you know, I think that goes a long way in just inviting new renters to, you know, attract attention, you know, I mean, just you walk down the street and you see a new or a building that you walk by every day. And then one day it's painted, you know, you say, Oh, like that looks really nice. And, you know, it makes a big difference. Um, and then, you know, uh, some amenities like a pool, some covered parking, which is, important in uh, Arizona because it gets to be above 100 degrees uh, <laughs> probably what yeah, two, in, in 200 April. days yeah, yeah. <laughs> starting in April uh, you know I was just talking to one of the gals at the title company and I was asking about the weather you know just to kind of whatever something to talk about and she was like it's already too hot because yeah. uh, at one point I looked on my phone and it was 27 here degrees and then 72 there so I, that's why I told her I'm like it was the numbers were flipped yeah and she's like when was it 72 it's 92 right now yeah and I was like dang it's, it's yeah still, I, I think th- I was talking to her in March yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think we were there in October and it was like 105 degrees so it stays hot yeah. there so the the covered parking is uh that's a, a big deal um and then, you know, nice location. So it's located in Tempe, like I said, um, about a mile and a half south of Arizona State University and um, downtown Tempe. So good central location. You know, you can get to downtown Tempe in about, you know, 10 minute drive and then probably like 20 minute drive to either downtown Scottsdale and downtown Phoenix. So, you know, close to close to everything, um, you know, good amenities nearby, you know, some good grocery stores like Fry's, Sprouts, uh, 
Arizona Mills Mall is pretty close by as well. Um, and, you know, this is also, you know, a section of the city that's not seeing a ton of new supply being delivered. Um, you know, this is the 85282 zip code. And I think, you know, we have about six units per 1,000 people under construction right now. Um, so nice infill locations. You know, we don't really have to worry about comparable product being built up. Um, you know, that's good for us. That's good for rents. That's good for doing the value add. Right. Great. Well, yeah, you want to dive into then, like, what's our business plan then with it? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, like I said, uh, um, you know, a number of the units were, were fully renovated. Um, a good chunk of those, um, you know, it's something that we, I guess, don't see too often, but it, it pops around. Um, some of the units were actually leased to tenants who are using them for uh, short term vacation rentals like Verbo or Airbnb and you know, we plan to eventually turn those over to, uh, you know, just regular, you know, apartment, um, you know, traditional apartment leasing to just, you know, single tenants who aren't ne necessarily using them um, for, for short term vacation rentals. But, you know, that wasn't an issue with our, our lender um, that this was occurring, that they had these uh, units being leased to, you know, short term vacation rentals. Um, some lenders, it, it, it could be an issue like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Um, I don't think they like that. Um, right. One thing I always preach and talk about is always think about your exit. And so on this deal, like to sum up our business plan on one hand, we're, we're buying a deal that was like this halfway renovated through being like a full, completely renovated deal. So we're going to finish the renovation. And then in my mind, like the buyer, when we go sell, it's going to be to somebody from like California who wants a long-term hold. The deal's fully cleaned up. All you got to do is buy it and just run it, mm -hmm. and you, it's easy to do from from far away. Just as an individual, if it's like that, and it's the same thing on the on with the Airbnb comment. Because right, if you're gonna rent to Airbnb tenants, a lot of the non recourse lenders like Freddie Fannie, a lot of these debt funds, which this deal be too small for a debt fund, but just they would be included to life insurance companies. A lot of them right in their loan docs. It says you can't you can't rent to anybody who's doing like short-term leases or mm -hmm. with rent to a company, you know, that's another way they block it. Like if you, the Airbnb operator, eventually they're going to want to sign the leases in a, like a LLC or some sort of business and not have all that personal liability. But then that's, so they, they block it a lot of ways, but point being, why would you want to limit your buyer pool at the end? To, if someone comes through and they are willing to pay the most and then they look at it and go, wait, I can't get the loan I want anymore. I really like mm -hmm. to use Freddie Mac for these deals. I mean, you're going to end up getting a lower price, you know, unless the rent was like so much higher off the Airbnb part that then you could offset that somehow when you limit your buyer pool. So, but yeah, on the front end, definitely not an issue for us. It's one nice thing about using a bank where we just explained what mm -hmm. is happening and I just asked them right away. I always find that's better too as like another tip. Like if you see this, you should just ask in the front end especially especially with lenders like they want to make the loan they want to have the business you know they're they're way more flexible on the front end where who knows maybe if we would have asked can we do this like a year in they'd say oh no we don't like that mm -hmm. but if you can make a whatever you know a four million dollar loan and you know just you're couple okay with a, you know some airbnb units now you can make the loan so it's also that's another tip to just be transparent and then also a lot of these people that are in it's kind of a sales role they'll be your advocate especially on the front end when they need to produce the, the business yeah yeah that's a great point and you know real estate 
by itself is already one of the most illiquid assets out there. You know, I can't just go on that stock exchange and right. buy a couple shares of, you know, some property. So anything that makes it even more illiquid like that, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna be a damper on, you know, your exit price. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. Um, and you know, just kind of tailing off that, you know, we would go in and then renovate, you know, the rest of the unit. So the partials, um, and as well as the classic unit, um, to match, you know, the full renovation spec as those, um, you know, the full cosmetic renovations that the seller had done to those seven units. So, you know, I think, um, at least for the, the two bed, one bath units, um, the last six or seven leases were signed at like 1750. And then for the one bedroom units, you know, we had a few leases signed at like 1500. So made sense, you know, that's the, that's the rent. And, you know, we wanted to add in washer dryers as well. Um, one thing that I forgot to mention is that, you know, the, the property also has like an on-site laundry facility with, you know, two, two washers, two dryers, you know, nothing special. So, you know, having that personal washer dryer in your unit, I mean, that's a, that's a nice value add and, you know, you can definitely get a good premium on, on top of that. So I think we, you know, we budgeted like another, you know, 75 bucks or so on top of that and getting to rent about. 1600 for the one by ones and then 1850 for the the two by ones um so you know that's kind of what we underwrote um and you know pricing guidance was initially high six millions um but you know i was talking with the broker and he's saying i think the seller is pretty motivated to sell um she wants to do a 1031 exchange um so she wants to you know just sell this and get into a new deal and uh let's see if we can get something done so you know, I think, you, you know, we entered it something in the low six millions into our model, underwrote the deal and it looked pretty solid. So we made a, made it a point to go out to Phoenix to uh, tour the asset and, uh, you know, see it live and in person. Um, and, you know, it, it looks solid. The, the renovations were, you know, really well done. It's a good location um, in Phoenix, um, like the deal and like it had a really strong cap rate. Um, one of the things, though, that was peculiar about the deal, though, was that it had been on the market for a few weeks now. Um, and at this point in time, Phoenix uh, is the most liquid it ever had been as a market. Um, you know, in terms of like 2021 sales, I think it was um, the most uh, in the decade just by number of units that have been uh, traded. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of peculiar that, like, why hasn't this thing traded? I would expect, you know, this to be under LOI within two or three days of the listing. Um, and, you know, it kind of clicked for us when we realized that uh, the tenants who had been uh, leasing the units to use for Airbnbs and Verbos, um, they were actually uh, above market rents um, because it's not necessarily something like something that you see around uh, pretty often, you know, you underwrite 20, 30, 40, up to 300 unit, uh, apartment deals. And the significant majority of them do not have this, uh, Airbnb tenant in place. Right. So when we did a little bit more of a market survey, we were seeing that, you know, this 1750 for a two by one, you know, the, it's really nice, uh, quality, um, renovation, but it, it's above market. So when we realized that, you know, we we made it a point to adjust our rents to, you know, 
because we're eventually going to lease these to traditional apartment renters. So we wanted to adjust those rents. Um, and I think we um, we settled on 1550 for the one by ones and then 1725 for the two by ones. Um, that's fully renovated with in unit washer dryers. So make that adjustment and it's a pretty significant impact to uh, the value. Um, and I, you know, I think this is like a, a really important thing to bring up because, you know, we had underwritten it with these higher rents, which were being achieved at the property. So the deal looks really great on a cap rate basis, but you know, it kind of clicked for us and you know, why it wasn't traded because these rents are above market and people may be looking at this deal on a per unit basis or per square foot basis, uh, like in terms of like purchase price. Um, so they, they might not be attributing that value to those rents. And I think that's important for not only multifamily, but all types of real estate where there's a lot of nuances and like hair, we'll call it, um, with deals where there might be an underlying reason why rents may be above market or below market. And that's important to, you know, discern and like figure out while you're doing the underwriting process, because there's, you know, a chance that you could be overpaying for something. Right. It's yeah, I think it's real important to look at the deal a lot of ways. Like you're mm -hmm. going in cap rates is one one metric. But yeah, if you're buying like a shopping center and half of its lease to Starbucks at something that's, you know, forty five dollars a foot or in rent in a market that's twenty five a foot, yeah, your cap rate's gonna look amazing because a lot of buyers are gonna go, Okay, what would this be worth if Starbucks leaves? I'm gonna re rent this thing at twenty five dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, when it goes to market and it's, you know, gonna chop that value of that space roughly in half. So I think it's really important to look at these deals a lot of ways like Evan's talking about. And, you know, one of them really would be what's what is this thing worth just at market rents today? And that's what you're describing where we're going. The market rent probably isn't quite as high as the Airbnb person's paying at the moment. And I've seen that plenty of times because there should be if you are, let's say you're asking 1750 on this deal and then you're not getting it, well, let's say from just regular renters, then you, your rent's above market. You know, usually it's just the price. I mean, assuming there's not anything wrong with your advertising, if it's mm -hmm. not renting. And then an Airbnb person comes by and says, I'll take them. I mean, then they're kind of paying over market, but they got it and the landlord goes, this is fine now because I'm getting the rent and it's worth the extra hassle. But it's, you know, so at first we didn't have that figured out till we did our rent study and then it all sort of came together. So yeah, good. Good point. Want to reiterate that on looking at sort of it from a market rent today standpoint, because that's especially common in in retail and these other product types where certain tenants can pay more, mm -hmm. um, especially in the commercial space. Because in a business like your rent, depending on the type of business, it's you know, uh, I mean, I guess this could be really low in a grocery store, but let's say it's like three percent to twenty some percent of their overall costs are the rent. So if you really really want to be on a, a certain spot in your Chipotle or whatever, let's say in retail you can pay up because that might just be, you know, 10 or 15% of the cost of the whole store. So even if you paid 50% more than market to get that end cap, the corner you want, it didn't, it only moved your costs up, you know, whatever, uh, you know, just a 50% more on the 15. So it's not, you know, I bumped it up into the twenties, I guess, but it mm -hmm. didn't, you should have like a commensurate sales increase then. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, good, good point. Yeah. Especially important uh, today with rents moving around so much on all product types. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, uh, we had initially circled low six millions for this property and yeah, obviously, you know, the change in market rents that we had set, uh, 
that that was a significant impact to the valuation. So we, you know, we ended up lowering it and, you know, we still thought, you know, it's a good deal. We're not going to be going in at a purchase price necessarily. That's going to, uh, wow the, the seller, but, um, yeah, so we, we lowered our valuation to 5.7 million, which was ultimately our, our purchase price. And, you know, I kind of discussed this with the broker saying that like, Hey, you know, I, I had originally thought maybe we could get something done at six million or maybe a little bit above that. Uh, but this is what we're seeing in the market rents. And I think that's important to, you know, discuss that with the broker rather than just throwing in an offer um, that was well below what the initial guidance was. Cause maybe they think that you're just throwing in a low ball offer. Right. Um, and this was our initial offer. Cause you said we dropped our price. That was really just in our model, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, correct. And then cause originally we're, and did you tell them you thought, I'm going to come in in the low six millions. And then this conversation you had was, um, we're, we actually can't, this is where we're coming in or. I think it was, it was an initial discussion where, you know, he had given me guidance, you know, in the low six millions. And, you know, I said, Hey, it looks pretty good. You know, we're interested in seeing it. So we're going to go down to Phoenix, um, and check it out. But, uh, you know, I, I'd never said fully that like, you know, we're in on the deal for 6.2 million or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, we ultimately, you know, put in an LOI at 5.7 million and we, you know, we, we held firm and we kind of saw how motivated the seller was, uh, cause you know, within a few hours, I think we received a counter at 6.3 million, which, you know, was the initial guidance that we had received, but we didn't get emotional about the deal. You know, we set a price that worked for us. You know, we're not going to reach for it when we think it's there. Um, we're going to hold firm to our valuation because, um, you know, the seller might have one idea for what it's worth. But, um, you know, we have our idea and we have investors and we want to make sure that we're paying market for a property. So, you know, we stayed at 5.7 million. The seller countered at 6.3 without, you know, engaging in, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, counter ourselves, the seller actually countered themselves again and lowered their price to 6 million. So they said 6.3, then they went down to 6 million and we didn't budge. You know, we still didn't get emotional about the deal. You know, they still went down 300,000, um, which is, you know, a pretty good chunk for one of these smaller deals, but you know, we didn't move. And then, um, I think, one or two le- weeks later, the seller actually counted their, themselves a third time down to 5.7 million, which was our initial offer. So they said, you know, take it or we're going to do for call for offers. And at which point we said, let's do it. Yeah. And it's a great learning lesson for here. And even for me, because what's interesting from my perspective is I can, I can say for sure. And I actually, I don't think I told you this before. If I if I just was still working just on my own solely, I wouldn't have bought this deal. Mm-hmm. Not because I don't like the deal, just because I would have underwrote it and said, I'm at 5.7. This broker's telling me the ask price was 6.7. Now it looks like it might go for 6.3. I'm like more than 10, I'm like 10% off that. Like I'm not going to yeah. get it. This is the hottest market basically in the entire country. Like stuff selling, you know, similar, the same brokers had a similar deal. Obviously, there's a different, you know, uh, income and unit count because the price will be different. But they were doing the same thing on another one. The whisper price was like 
nine and a half. And then by the time we asked the second question about it, it's like, oh, it's already gone. Yeah. You know, we got like three <laughs> offers around that. Yeah. So it's gone. And then uh, you're doing a call for offers. Like, well, we don't need to. We already have a feeding frenzy on it. You know, yeah. like that's so then we're hearing that and we're like, OK, so I probably would have just would have stopped on my own then said I got to spend time on something else. Mm -hmm. And Evan stuck with it where originally I thought we were actually underwriting it. We had to have been underwriting it higher than five seven because we've never before just at least that I can remember offered here's our best number first. So then I think what we were doing was our rents. We originally made that five seven offer and we thought the rents might be twenty five dollars higher, thinking okay maybe we'll get to like six million or something. This is what I'm remembering. You can tell me if this is wrong, but and then the more we studied the rents, we're like actually this should be twenty five dollars less kind of made five seven our best offer then at that point actually mm -hmm. which then so to me i'm talking to you and i'm going this this is kind of a waste of time now evan like we uh we're trying to do larger deals too you know at the same time we're buying something that's um you know we're, we're looking at deals that are 30 million 20 million 40 million and we're spending all the time back and forth on this you know six million dollar <laughs> deal like let's just you know we're not close on price like let's uh you know forget about it and, you know, I, Kurt Bender was on the podcast and he talked a lot about this, that he always throws in an offer on every deal, just where he's at. The brokers like getting the offer. And then he, he gets a lot of what he call rebound deals where fine, someone starts out at a higher price, then something happens, they cancel it. And they kind of then go back down through the people who made an offer. Mm -hmm. And I've, I would have to really think if I ever got a rebound deal, like I'd yeah. have to think about it. I don't have one off the top of my head. Not in a marketed situation, an off-market thing I have where it was like someone was at this price. They're not closing. Could you do it close to that? I've gotten those, but not in the thing like Kurt was talking about. So I, you know, I learned on that podcast from Kurt and I um, learned on this deal, too, because then what ended up happening is you stuck with it. And, you know, since five, seven ended up being our best offer, we just kind of the term is hanging around the hoop. You know, Sam Zell says that a lot and uh, it's, you know, definitely right because it worked out on this or we didn't say, never mind, stop calling us. Yeah. It doesn't sound like five sevens a deal. We just kept saying, hey, we want to buy it. You know, we updated our rents and we made like five seven our max. Like we would like to buy it, though, if we could get it. And it's so it's and it worked out. So, I mean, I this was something where I would have just cut it if I didn't have more, any. I wouldn't have the time to do this. So it's exciting mm -hmm. kind of as a platform we're able to put this together as a as a team because then i would have not had the time i would have been like i need to spend time on something else or um you know i wouldn't have you know would have just kind of fallen by the wayside yeah but we just continued to hang by the hoop and then it's also really rare for people to counter themselves you know but if um you know they started out at too high of a price that kind of must have been a turnoff or something for people and then they were just guessing now at this point but you know there was less engagement in it and then it's hard to get people to re-engage. And then now we're, I don't know, at that point, maybe the only people at the table. A lot of people, too, they're waiting for a call for offers date on these. And they didn't have, um, they were not sure, is my recollection, if they're going to do a call for offers or just feel them as offers come in and respond. So that's why we offered early. So maybe mm -hmm. some people were waiting for a call for offers. I don't know. Yeah. You know? And, I, you know, I think you kind of touched on this but um you know before we talked to the broker and he said maybe a deal gets done at low sixes um he said that the initial guidance that they went out was went out with was a uh, 6.7 million that's what right. the seller wanted 
and um you know you you kind of touched on this but someone might see that and you know call up the broker and ask what guidance is and they say 6.7 million that's really high they might say this deal is not worth it i'm going to focus my time on other things so you're already you're already starting at a you know smaller buyer pool who thinks this a property is overpriced um so they might divert their attention to to something else um and I, I think we kind of see the opposite when a property is has guidance that below that is below what you know we think it's worth. Then we'll see everyone pulling in, and then the price shoots up. Yeah. Um. So it, it's kind of a you know an interesting dynamic where you know it really depends where initial pricing guidance comes in in terms of like what your buyer pool really looks like at the end of the day. Yeah. That's definitely right. And we're kind of just speculating too on how this played out, but because the broker on this is really good. So it wasn't like the, you know, it was like, oh, if a different company had it, it would have gone differently. Like this is a really good, good broker and they make a big difference once it, you know, to get the highest price and then to keep deals together. So it definitely wasn't bad. Mm -hmm. So maybe talk about like the returns or where do you want to go next? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, returns wise, I think we were going in at a cap rate of about like 4.7 and with the value add we were going uh stabilizing to like a four nine um which doesn't seem like that large of a spread because it isn't um but you know we're attributing you know uh a decrease in rents because of those airbnb units having larger mark uh larger rents than market um so there, there's a bit of a, a correction there, um, but you know, just looking at the the in place cap rate by itself, that's very, very strong for this market of four seven. Um, whereas most deals are, you know, low three cap deals, especially for value add, where um, you know you really need to come in and not only mark rents to market, which most of these deals that we underwrite are 20, 30 percent below market. Um, and you know th this deal was going to be cash flowing from the start, which was attractive. Um, we had budgeted about four hundred thousand in total capital improvements, ranging from you know the interior renovations, adding in the washer dryers, um, taking care of you know some deferred maintenance, and you know having some uh, contingency in there as well. Um, so you know I think we saw that uh, similar product you know, 70s, 80s, vintage type stuff, fully renovated, smaller property, well located. Um, most of those types of deals were trading in the low four caps. So call it like a four, three stabilized cap rate. So um, on a like a as stabilized today value, snap your fingers, all the renovations are done. Um, we add in the washer dryers, we take care of any deferred maintenance. Um, our stabilized today valuation was about 7 million. So we'd be creating about 1.3 million in value through our strategy, um, which is pretty nice. And we underwrote to a three-year hold, um, a four, three exit cap rate. And that ended up equating to about 10, 11% in annual asset appreciation. Um, and one of the, the studies that we had done uh, was examining like the the appreciation rate of all multifamily properties in the market by looking at all the transaction um, data through Yardi, and from there we could look at you know the same property had traded you know several times you know throughout the last ten years, and we can actually measure the 
actual price appreciation um, annually. So the market actually it's averaged you know fourteen percent from twenty thirteen to twenty nineteen. So our underwriting of ten to eleven percent felt pretty pretty on par with where the market has been. Um, and then we also assumed uh, five 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 four. Um, percent rent growth uh, in years one, two, three, and four. And, you know, the market's averaged over 5% over the last 15 years. And I don't think market rent growth has been less than 5% um, since 2012, uh, according to Yardi. So we felt, you know, that assumption was uh, about in line with where the market was at. And, you know, we also, you know, ran our own um, AI rent growth Um you know, we, we use our AI uh, rent growth model um, to assess like this zip code as well. And, um, you know, that looked really strong as well. And like I said, it's infill location, not much new supply in the pipeline. Um, so all together and to the LP, it would be about a 20 IRR and a one seven multiple. And that's on a on a three year hold. Correct. Too. And then I think one thing too to note, you know, when we're talking about, you know, 10.7% appreciation and the market being 14 plus like that's you know we measured the market one not market appreciation not every deal necessarily was a deal where someone's adding value mm-hmm. so we're underwriting this i mean realistically pretty like quite conservatively if you think about it, we have like an entire value add strategy and then we run out our you know our model and we're assuming oh, let's just round it 11 appreciation when just all the deals that sold divided by their original you know price last time it sold is averaging 14 percent a year like this we're um we're definitely underwriting this conservatively same thing with the rents if we're doing five percent a year i mean the market you know i keep coming back to where yeah we cooked our yardy date in the 10-year you know trailing average it's 8.6 percent the five-year you know it's uh, 11 so i mean we're you know we're just we're picking that because it's you know it's just a it feels conservative but i feel like mm-hmm. we're you know we're definitely why well, we're going to beat the rents, you know, yeah. cap rate's going to be the million dollar question now with interest rates going up for, you know, the next, like for the foreseeable future, that'll be the conversation. But I think the, at least, you know, especially on this deal, like we have so much rent growth here, mm-hmm. you know, between the renovation and then there's the market where we'll be, um, yeah, we'll be, be looking good. It was interesting also too here. And you just even just read off the cap rates. I was listening to a podcast this morning, uh, you know, I don't know. I just really like real estate. Apparently, where uh, when I was having breakfast, I listened to a different real estate. To your podcast. own podcast? No, no, that was uh, that's no, that would be good. Um, I, that's that's funny. No, it's actually uh, it's the Old Capital podcast. Um, okay. Yeah, Paul Peebles, Michael Becker. Um, yeah, they're they're in in Dallas, and um, Paul Peebles is a lender. Michael Becker, he's a principal doing multifamily investing, and they were talking about Austin and Dallas and the cap rates. And there, a big thing, obviously, is in Texas that taxes change um, annually. And then they really, they don't know your sale price because it's non-disclosure state, but they chase hard. They, they raise it so much, they basically force you to disclose it because then they raise it. If you paid $10 million, they move you to $12 million, And then you have to go to the court and say, hey, I only paid $10 million. This is messed <laughs> up. And then, you know, um, then hopefully get it down to, you know, 90 or 95% of what you paid after, you know, filing a, a lawsuit and all that. But anyways, their tax adjusted market cap rate on deals in Austin and Dallas, it was, I don't have it in, I don't have the exact number, but they were saying it was like, uh, this is where they're stabilizing to. It was like in the low threes. 
So it would be like you're uh-huh. going in at a two something, like tax adjusted, obviously, because our rents are whatever, 10, 20 percent below market. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you hit your year one pro forma rents and you'll be you'll be in at a low three cap. And they're talking about wow. this is like a, this was maybe like a month old and they're talking about then that's crazy. Rates are at four. Like you really got you really got to believe the rent growth is there. And in these places like Phoenix or you know Arizona, Texas, Florida, there's such a like everyone on that podcast really believe the rent growth is just going to be is going to be so strong, you know, where there is, I have all these anecdotes where it's 10% plus on all their trade outs and they're sending out renewals at 10% rent bumps and everyone's signing it. Um, and their whole thing is like, this is not, this is not just like some cyclical thing. And right now it's like, you know, it's like the stock market or whatever goes up and mm-hmm. down. And, um, this is like a secular shift where this is different. You know, everyone yeah. was moving, you know, wanted to move to New York and California before. And now it's just, it's a total different deal. You know, people graduate college and they're thinking, okay, should I go to Austin, Texas or Miami or Phoenix or, you know, like where it's a totally different uh different world and that's not mm-hmm. like a temporary thing this is gonna be like this for the you know for the foreseeable future yeah so it's inter- interesting to hear the you just say the cap rates i'm like wow these feel really really high especially in phoenix they don't adjust the taxes when you sell mm-hmm. so you could be they're kind of guessing almost here's what my stabilized cap rate is going to be because they don't know their tax number we do like they the cap on what the limited value can change in in arizona is it's five percent a year so we just underwrite it hitting the max every year just to be conservative but so we do know our number so then like when these are mm-hmm. um yeah this feels really high to stabilize at a four nine you know and then i know we're going into the four seven but that's like my starbucks example almost irrelevant in a way like this deal um we see a lot of deals selling where the going in cap rates uh a two and they stabilize to less than a four seven, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, uh, and apparently that's what all of Texas is like as well. Yeah. So cool. Well, yeah, that's, uh, maybe back to the deal, but yeah. about another <laughs> podcast in market. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we had a verbal agreement to do the deal at 5.7 million and, um, you know, actually I, I didn't, um, share this when I wrote the LOI, but, um, I, I had actually written in the LOI that, upon expiration of the due diligence period, we would release to the seller the earnest money deposit. And I think it was 50,000, 100,000 uh, in that the range. The earnest money amount? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it was 100. You should yeah. look it up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I think it was 100 and then additional was 250. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll look it up, keep going. Yeah, uh, so you know, um, we had evaluated a number of deals in Phoenix already to this point. Um, and a number of the brokers had said, you know, because the, the market has been so aggressive, you know, it's the most liquid it's ever been. A lot of these deals, um, the, the earnest money is released to the seller day one and is non-refundable. Um, we actually did that for another deal um, that we just closed on. But um, I had written in that it would be released to the seller upon expiration of due diligence, which we had like a a 15 day period or 10, 15 day period. Um, but you know, just because it's, it's in the market that, you know, you release the earnest money deposit to the seller, that's not necessarily something that you should just include in the LOI 
um, without the the broker or seller countering first that it should be. Um, so I, I think that's something important to know. And, you know, it's not something that, you know, we had actually talked about before I sent in the LOI. Um, so, you know, you, you brought that up and it was a, it was a minor, you know, it was a mistake, but ended up being all right. Cause we, we still closed on the deal. Yeah. And I, and I did check the LOI before it went out, you know, but I just, I guess I just looked at the amounts, you know, where, yeah, the, cause it's not. It's extremely common for earnest money to be released in the entire Sunbelt on multifamily and on industrial. It's and in apparently I heard someone chiming in on Twitter or somewhere like in New York. It's always been like this in New York City. Mm -hmm. There's not anybody putting things under contract with not any uh, with some. You need some amount of non-refundable, and it's probably like that in California. You know, it's like that in California too. But anyways, yeah. So then, it's not. It really depends on the deal on if it the earnest money would be released and then also if all of it would be released. Because mm -hmm. something else that I've heard people talk about is maybe the earnest money is a hundred thousand, but they're only releasing twenty-five of it. Mm -hmm. Or and also when is it released? After due diligence, that's not really that big a deal at this where the with where the market's at. There's people who have to put up a whole deposit, have it non-refundable, and released immediately. And then the only way they could back out if there's like a title issue. And some deals they're like, here's our old title report. Like you have to, there's no way you can back out now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, um, yeah, and I pulled it up. It was 100,000 initial. I'm looking at the signed purchase and sale contract. 100,000 initial and then 250,000 um, because we'll, we extended it 30 days um, to do the extension. So, yeah, we had 350 up. Download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today at riseinvest.com slash downloads. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. Um, so also that's a lot of earnest money for a deal of size too. I mean, mm -hmm. usually in a lot of markets, 2% of purchase is normal. So that would be, you know, just like a touch over a hundred grand. Um, so then that, well, I guess actually with the extension, the only thing that's a lot is that extension was way more than normal mm -hmm. but we that was something we went through and we were doing the LOI you know not you can't always get an ex, you know an extension uh written in there and I guess I'll explain that since now we're talking about it but our our LOI was a 60-day closing so 60 days from signing the purchase contract and then if we at a buyer's option we could extend the closing date another 30 days if we put up additional non-refundable earnest money a lot of deals people just cross out and say, I don't, I want to close in 60 days. I don't want to have given extension. So that was a lot of money, but I guess on one hand we were happy just to have it, you know? Mm -hmm. So then that, to me, it's been my experience. It's like, I don't know, maybe just a throw a percentage, like a quarter of the sellers are just like, we don't want to have that. And then maybe another quarter is like, they don't care at all. So mm -hmm. then you can extend it for, you know, 25 grand or something. Mm -hmm. And then the, maybe the other half, they, you know, kind of on the fence and do care about it if there's like enough money up so mm -hmm. and if they want to do a 1031 exchange which we were told that the seller was interested in doing i don't know if they um ended up actually executing something but i think that that was the reason why they wanted that larger uh deposit for the extension which, yeah which makes sense because at a certain point you know she's going to find a deal and then she's going on her deal and if it's in arizona she's going to be non-refundable on something with mm -hmm. her money released so then yeah. she's looking at this going i don't want to you know, have these guys back out. And then, so I really need to, you know, have a 
tied up strongly by then. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. And like we, we had the agreement to do the deal at 5.7 million. Um, and the broker said he was going to send over the Arizona form contract, which, um, the seller herself, she was actually a licensed realtor in Arizona, just mostly selling, um, you know, sing, single family houses and things like that. Um, that was the contract she was used to. So the broker said, Hey, I'm going to get this signed up. I'm going to get the seller's signature and send it over to you. And, you know, we had no experience using this contract before. Um, so, you know, it's a good idea to not sign a contract that you don't know, or you haven't read, or you don't really know the nuances. So we had to scramble a little bit just because like I had said before, you know, they said, take it or leave it with this $5.7 million offer, or we're going to take it to a call for offers. Um, so, you know, we, we scrambled a little bit and I, I talked to a few lawyers in Arizona to see what they thought about the contract. And, you know, actually when, uh, I started working for you, we had a deal, uh, under contract in Chicago and that was using the, the Illinois form contract and baked into that Illinois form contract is an attorney review period which, you know, you get the the contract signed up and then I think you have like, what, 15 days for uh, the attorney to create like modifications and comments and things like that. Um, but that didn't exist with the Arizona form contract. And I think we were like, this was right around like Thanksgiving time. So uh, a lot of the lawyer, like, uh, you know, we're, we're signing off for Thanksgiving. I'm probably not gonna be able to get like these modifications to you in like over a week's time. And you were backed up against a, a, a CFO now. Um, so, you know, what ended up happening, you know, we, we learned that it's going to be difficult to modify. There's no attorney review period. Um, by the time I'd figured all this out, uh, I got a signed contract from the broker with the seller's signature on it. And, you know, I told the broker like, hey, I've been talking to a few people and like, it's going to be difficult to modify. I'm uh, we need to figure out something else. And obviously, you know, when the broker gets a gives a signed contract over to you, when you have a, a verbal agreement to get the deal done at this purchase price um, and say, you know, you can't do it with this contract, he's probably going to be, you know, pretty upset about that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> that, so with the seller. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, that that, that was a little uh, bit of a hiccup, but. Um, and you know, they, they were upset, but like we, we ironed it out and we were actually, um, we were in the process of, we had actually just signed another contract for another deal, Desert Palms, um, to do that deal. And that was a a contract that the seller had used. It was a good contract. We had just signed it. We had put in our modifications. So our solution was like, Hey, we got a good contract that we just used very similar building. It's another you know, guy who's in Arizona and who does deals just like this seller. We think it's a good contract. Let's try to use it. Um, so we proposed to use that and we um, were able to get it ex- uh, the deal executed before uh, CFO day. Yeah. And CFO is a call for offers. And one thing that I find interesting here in the explanation around the contract is just sort of like how important like sales is in general, mm-hmm. where because the I, I have remember just in my head explaining, telling you, like, here's how to like convince them to use it. Like, tell them the contract is actually not from us. It's from the seller of that deal. Mm-hmm. Cause like, that's a good 
selling point to them, uh, you know, as the seller of this building we're trying to buy. Like, oh, it didn't. It's not like your super buyer favorable contract. It's like it actually came from a seller, and we already worked through all the usual changes. So you might as well call it like a. And I was like, maybe we try to call it like a form contract from that guy's attorney, like where you know where we were kind of had to pitch the contract almost like we just used it. It was actually not ours. And it, you know, seemed really fair. And the seller obviously liked it cause they sent it to us. Like, let's use this. Mm. And then they, they went for it. Um, but yeah, the whole time was there, you know, pushing hard cause they, um, you know, to cancel a call for offers. I think they had announced the date. So mm. then you have to, then if you know, people are gonna submit, you need to tell them like it actually got taken off the market. And they disengage and if it's you know they really wanted to, to know like this thing's like fully signed up and not um not a deal who that's gonna like fall apart when we go to try to negotiate a purchase contract so i get their motivation and then it was so it was uh you know trying to think how to like sell them on this yeah thing, basically so yeah definitely um so yeah you know we ended up getting the the deal signed up and um you know, I realized when we were talking about the underwriting, I, I didn't discuss like what our, our loan assumptions were, um, which uh, we went to a bank that we had used before. We had just closed another deal in Phoenix with this bank. Um, so we were underwriting, um, you know, we had the purchase price of 5.7 million. We had about another 400,000 on top of that in renovation dollars. So we got a loan amount for uh, 4.8 million roughly, um, which is about an 80% loan to cost. Um, so initial funding would be about 4.5 million upfront, and then with future funding up to 400,000. Um, origination fee of you know 75 basis points, uh, five-year term fixed rate, three and a half percent, 12 months of interest only. And then uh, a prepay, um, prepayment penalty of 3% in the first year, 1% in the second year, and then zero after that. So um, good for, you know, our, uh, I guess, short-term value-add execution where we wouldn't necessarily be locked into a loan where we have to pay an expensive prepayment penalty, you know, after two, three, four years, whatever, um, however long we end up uh, holding the asset. Right. And this is something I've said, you know, probably this is closing on the eighth time I might have said this on the podcast, but it is, is so important where like for this, uh, the, the prepay structure where you really want to match up your loan with your business plan. And our plan is a three year hold. Obviously, we might decide, OK, hey, let's sell it in year two. We finished our renovation quicker or let's say the rents are, are still growing at 14 percent a year. Let's keep this for five years and why, why would we sell it while well, there's still all this growth but we have now set up our loan where in any of those scenarios that i just laid out two three five years the most we're going to pay and prepay is one percent mm-hmm. and so like I, it's it's really important because i think one thing too you could get um let's just take like the worst case kind of loan like you do a yield maintenance prepay so that you need to you know how it's there's an actual calculation for it, but how I think of it, you got to maintain the lender's yield. So you got to basically pay all your interest on the loan through the term minus what they couldn't make if they invested it in treasuries. And there's some discounting going in on that. But basically, you know, the I've heard people paying prepays when it's yield maintenance, 20 percent, 10 percent. We've had stuff quoted where, yeah, it's like a eight million dollar loan. And it's, um, this is before I'm like, just no more yield maintenance. And. Mm-hmm. And it'd be like, what's the prepay on that? And it'd be like, it's a million dollars, you know, or a million and a half. And 
and also too that again that limits your buyer pool in 2020 uh one of the deals one in january then this one i think and, and then and then one in february we we bought three of the four deals we bought that year were loan assumption deals and a big part of that was we thought we were getting a good deal because we're paying a kind of like a lower number for the he for the headache of taking on this loan mm -hmm. some of them were or i guess i should say we underwrote to what worked for us and odds are if that building i'll just say it differently we offered a price that made sense for us and odds are if these buildings were offered free and clear with no loan assumptions just like we were talking about with the airbnbs the buyer pulls bigger odds are someone's willing to pay more than us mm -hmm. but you know one of the loans was uh the interest rate was high one the leverage was high so not every buyer is going to want that and then the you know so then like some and then the other one the rate was low and the ltv was like in the 60s so that's that's a loan where like a lot of people would want but not everybody maybe the highest payer would have tried to do a 80 percent you know, Freddie Fannie loan or something. And then it went to, went to worked out. But yeah, so that's just so important because then we see that as a buyer where we're some of these deals, we think, hey, we're getting a great deal here. It's the, the it's because the buyer pool got limited. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I, and I actually just kind of calced it out because it's, it's just, this is like simple math and not exactly right because you're amortizing your loan. But another way I'm going to start thinking about this just for myself is let's say you did a step down prepay on like a loan like this, a five year, and it started out 5% year one, 4% year two, 3% year three, and then two, then one. Um, on a loan like this, let's say we did that prepay structure and then we held it for three years. You paid three and a half percent every year on your normal interest rate. Then at the end, you pay an extra 3% on the way out. It's not exactly right, because uh, what I'll say next, because you're amortizing the principal down, but it's basically like you paid four and a half percent because you pay 3% on the way out, three divided by one, um, uh, sorry, you know, 3% on the way out divided by the three years equals 1% extra each year. It's like you paid four and a half. So mm -hmm. then even though you were paying three and a half, you got to pay almost like a whole year's interest on the way out. So then you start realizing that and then you'd go like, hey, I would even pay a higher rate to get this prepay if we needed because I'm better off if I, if let's say we had to pay a 3.7% rate, um, you know, to get a flexible prepay. Well, that's cheaper than four and a half on this like basic math thing. Um, so this was a prepay that I negotiated with the bank and it just was copying the one that I've done with Freddie Mac like 10 times. Cause this is, um, the lenders are, they don't want to make a loan and then get like paid off in like a year. So then mm -hmm. the 3% protects them, uh, from that. And then, um, you know, so that's like such an important point that I just want to keep harping on that because that once you realize that you start almost looking at this backwards in a way in terms of the order like, hey, it's a three year loan. Like, what's our prepay? What's our rate? Like, what's the leverage? Um, so that's, you know, that might have been the only thing we negotiated on the whole term sheet. I don't know if I negotiated the rate, actually. So, and so that's to me, it was almost you're negotiating the wrong thing. If you're going to do a three year hold and you got offered a high prepay to mm -hmm. tell them hey that rate's good but i really need i want this flexible prepay yeah save more money okay what do we do for the equity structure um yeah so for equity you know we did a syndication with uh high net worth investors families friends i think we ended up with um uh 14 total investors um 
including me. Yeah, and actually, that's one thing that I'm uh, is really cool. We actually it ended up where everybody who worked here invested money in the deal, mm-hmm. and a lot and saw some of them their parents did. Yeah, you know. So then, like, that's really cool. I wouldn't, you know, I would have never thought that would have happened, and um, you know, not. It really says something about the deals where people are working on it, or like the, you know you're modeling the deal you're doing it and then you and then the you know the guy sitting next to you is like hey we should get like money in this and like get a share you know um and same thing with the you know just so it's interesting to see where um yeah so out of the 14 investors i mean you know six you know five or so of those were the deal team you know so that's um you know interesting to see play out you know i'm proud of that yeah and uh yeah and you know that's definitely good to see from uh you know, a GP where, you know, they're, they got their skin in the game and they believe in the deal in themselves. They're willing to put their own money. Um, so yeah, it was good. And I think, you know, total equity amount, uh, about 1.6, 1.7 million, um, waterfall to the investors. Uh, we had an 8% preferred return, um, where we pay the accrual and then we'll pay back, uh, any capital before we start to earn a promote. Um, then a 70-30 split above an 8%, and that's up to a 12% return, and then it's 50-50 thereafter. Nice. And then you said that the pay accrual, really, so like on the pref, if if you can't pay it in, let's say, the first year, the cash flow is 5, and that's what you distribute, the difference between the 8 and the 5, that gets accrued, so tacked on. So then you're building up a balance that all that needs to be paid where it's the equivalent to 8% a year. And also if you, whatever that shortfall is, it's building, that's also earning uh it's building, I'll just use the term interest, it's building interest at 8% on itself. So then you're getting a, what amounts to, after you get your money back, that's an eight IRR. So it's also discounted for time. Um, so then you you get your 8%. Um, that's how that works. Cause then just so to clarify, it's, uh, you know, compounding and mm-hmm. accruing. Cool, what about, where do you wanna go next? Yeah, I, I think we should talk about the the due diligence process, which, um, you know, we did a little bit of homework up front, you know, with these older deals and with, you know, so many of them um, having, you know, uh, uh, non-refundable day one earnest money. You know, you really want to do some due diligence up front in terms of like title, environmental, uh, things like that. So one of the things that we actually uh, have been doing to, with all our deals is we subscribe to a service called EDR um, and they provide like a neighborhood environmental report where it's, you know, a series of like government searches and then like a, um, you have like an environmental um, uh, personnel, like you get their opinion on the the deal itself, whether it's at low risk or high risk for any, uh, any environmental concerns. Um, you know, that's good to know upfront because let's say we, get through the deal and our the seller has our earnest money and we find out that there's a leaking you know underground storage tank underneath the property and that's going to be a a big concern well like with this edr report we would have known that up front um so that you know that was something that we uh had done that was useful and then um in terms of like deliverables you know we maintain a checklist of all the items that we expect to receive from the seller which is always good because you know um it wasn't really an issue with uh, this broker. They were they were very uh, well organized. I remember you saying like, it's "This the is the best organ- checklist I've ever seen," or you know, it was very organized. Where um, they put the documents, you know, numbered, um, 
you know, in like a Dropbox numbered with, you know, the exact items that we had requested per the PSA. Um, so it was really nice to have that. Sometimes you don't always get that. Sometimes, you know, you might get a rent roll sent over to you in one email and then, you know, T12 sent in another email. So it was really nice to have that. But, you know, we also maintain our internal checklist for what we should expect to see. Um, so that's good to, to make sure, you know, you don't lose um, anything like slips through the cracks. So, um, you know, the, I, I'd say the, the due, dil due diligence process was, you know, it's pretty straightforward. You know, we performed a lease audit, made sure, you know, the, the rents that were presented on the rent roll and then the lease start and lease expiration dates and security deposits, make sure that's all verified per like the actual lease documents where we have a signature from, uh, the seller and the tenant themselves. Um, you know, go through like utility invoices, making sure that we're underwriting utilities properly, covering water, sewer, trash, electric, gas, um, and then um, also going like through historic financials, um, doing things like uh, you have something no, to say. I'm, I'm smiling <laughs> just as you're listing these things. I'm thinking of all the crazy things I've seen over the years where like when you're talking about checking for the lease signatures, when I was buying 2032 and 2042 as Pierce, they none of the leases were countersigned by the owner. <laughs> so like you didn't, to have a valid contract, you need to have both parties sign and have it delivered back to them. Mm -hmm. So, cause let's say you have a contract and I sign it and give it to you. You could sign it and then never give it back to me. And then, um, you know, then at that point it's not, uh, you know, maybe in some instances it would be a valid contract, I guess, you know, check with your attorney. I'm not an attorney <laughs> and they, but they, these were definitely not valid contracts cause it wasn't even signed. So I, that's yeah. why I was smiling around. I'm like, yeah, I remember that deal or they didn't sign it or this other deal where there was just pulling teeth, getting information. And it would just be like any, you know, I mean, some of these things it's like, here's our checklist. And then you never, it's like, you're, it's like pulling teeth to get the info and the way we always send stuff and everyone comments to it where I'm detailed and then I've ended up hiring people who are also detailed. So we're sending things that are in a, like a link to a folder on Dropbox or box. And if you send us a checklist and we send you that in back, we'll rename the file or the folder with the same name and number you had. So if number one was leases, we would, if we're selling, we would have a folder or refinancing. It was a one period space leases. And then all the leases would be in there with the files named in a way where it would make some kind of sense. Mm -hmm. And this was the first deal I've ever been a part of where someone sent us information like that, or maybe the first thing ever in my life. So that's why it was like, let's tell Kellyanne, like, this is the best thing we've seen. Like, this <laughs> is the best uh, we've ever been sent info before. So definitely, I mean, people like to be appreciated. They're doing something, mm -hmm. something right. So, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think one of the, the biggest parts to the due diligence process is you're buying an actual property that exists, you know, brick and mortar. Um, you're not buying a, a stock that just kind of exists through a screen or, you know, uh, so you actually need to uh, hire consultants to do a physical inspection of the property. Um, and, you know, you, you walk through the units, you go on the rooftop, you check all the building systems, whether it's the HVACs, water heaters, um, You'll send a, like a camera through the sewer. You'll have termite inspectors go with you. So it's a very robust, um, you know, process to make sure, you know, the property is in good standing. Maybe there's a few things here and there um, that are broken, but that can be fixed. But um, it's a very, you know, important pro uh, part of the process. And, 
you know, with, with this being, um, you know, an older deal, like 1970s vintage, um, and especially for a value add deal, it's always really important to underwrite contingency um, when you're looking at these deals because it's not all about, you know, swapping out a countertop or, you know, putting in new cabinets and then getting a premium on top of that. Um, you know, you have to check the actual guts of the building, whether it's the plumbing, electric, the roof. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a good thing that we did because, um, you know, one of the first things that we discovered, like while I was there on the, the, the site was, um, the electrical panels for the units, they're all federal Pacific stab lock, which, um, are a fire hazard. And we realized that they'd all need to be replaced. Um, an another thing that popped up was that there was a crack in the sewer line, um, we also saw that there was, you know, a, a crack, like some pool foundation issues as well, which which we had seen like the first time we had actually just done like the the first site visit just to, you know, tour the property for the very first time. But, you know, the the electrical panels, the um, the crack in the sewer, like those aren't things that are going to be immediately obvious to you because. Well, I, th I think on the electrical panel that I actually I did notice that when we walked it. I mm -hmm. always look at the panels and that's it's almost like a famous panel in a way that like it's in loan documents by name. Like if you have <laughs> it, you know, not every loan, but some like you got you are agreeing to replace it within 12 months, you know. And so that because, yeah, in this deal we had um, and maybe I never told you that. I mean, we have money in our spreadsheet uh, yeah. either, I think, for the unit electric, you know, like 22,000 bucks or whatever it was. That was for the panels, I thought. Yeah, and that. like yeah, we we had budgeted in that cuz um you know, we were kind of going through the same thing with another one of our properties where, you know, it's not just going to be as easy as installing a washer dryer into a unit. You know, you got to make sure that like the electrical can support something such as this. So, that's something that we budgeted in for another one of our deals. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's good to, you know, assume that contingency on top of it cuz yeah, like I said, like not everything's just about installing in a washer dryer. That's it. Or just swapping out um, cabinets and countertops. You know, you got to make sure that the building actually works and it can actually be suited to fit your your business plan. Right. And I would actually say really on any deal you buy, there is CapEx to do. I've bought brand mm -hmm. new buildings, you know, or buildings that are two or three years old and there's still stuff to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, on a deal this size, I would if, if someone told me that's perfect, there's nothing to do. I'd still put 50,000 in for needed capex until I saw otherwise. Because mm -hmm. it's just so common where you'll go and it, yeah, it's renovated. Then you go there, there's like 30 grand of pool work looking at you. Mm -hmm. And then you, and then there's still, you know, you're going to find out stuff in your inspection. Then you do the inspection and you realize, okay, the sewer is cracked. And then that's, um, you know, so that's, you know, like that's why I would go with 50. I've just basically seen that, you know, like, happen time and time again you know it's happened to me like 40 times basically so what mm -hmm. it feels like so it's interesting comparing the prices on the sewers we had actually uh at the same time not uh not when we were buying it but we we fixed the sewer here and at another building i own it's interesting basically the same project um the price in chicago to uh, go through the concrete and just fix like a one small area where it broke was seven thousand. And then our price in Phoenix is forty two hundred bucks. It's the same work, mm -hmm. and so it's interesting the the price difference as well on some of these things that I can kind of compare from where I'm sitting every day. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, 
And, you know, I, I think to, to that end too, you know, I think there are a number of buyers who may overreact to something like that. Cause I think initially we thought maybe the, the crack in the sewer would be underneath one of the, the actual apartment units, which that means you got to kick the, the tenant out, you got to rip the floor out um, and then, you know, redo the sewer, then put new flooring on and it could have been a mess, but you know, we, um, you know, we want to stay true to, you know, the broker and the seller, and we want to make sure that we're getting a deal done. We're doing everything that we can. Um, and that helps with reputation, you know, it helps with, you know, deal flow in the future where, you know, if you tell the broker that there's things going on at the property, but you're going to do whatever you can to make sure that we, we close and we get a deal done, you know, they'll appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think too, some of these things too, they come up in where maybe if it was my first deal and I heard the sewers broke, broke, I'd be freaking out, you know, but I mean, this is probably like the fifth sewer I've had to fix, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, this, I mean, and that one, I mean, I had two broken at the same time, you know, like, so it's like, it's not <laughs> when we actually have fixed it. Now it's like, this isn't even uh, the only sewer that's broken. So if you tell me that I'm not freaking out basically at this point where maybe on the first one I would be, mm-hmm. so. Cause yeah, when you had, cause you heard it was broken first and you told me and it was like, well, we're already renovating the unit, you know, if it's yeah. under a unit or, or it's going to just be out in the parking lot of rocks here. It's one thing that's different. It's not out in the grass. There's not a lot of, not a lot of grass down there. Uh, you know, so it's like, it's not that big a deal. And, um, yeah, it just depends what, you know, how it was priced, how big the problem was. That's a pretty minor problem. If, you know, I bought, I was looking at a deal once where the sewer was broken in over 20 places. Wow, that deal I canceled because that was, uh, I don't know, a hundred, hundred thousand. I mean, at least to redo that sewer, and that wasn't, that was way beyond what I had in my spreadsheet, and then wasn't, you know, and the 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 you know market's strong in Chicago too. That deal was here, and you know, they didn't, they weren't, weren't interested in doing anything, so cancel it. You know, mm-hmm. so not doesn't you don't just skate past every problem. That's not the point, but like stuff that is like truly not that big a deal or you should be, you know, having some numbers in your spreadsheet already, you know, or budget or whatever you're making for things like this, especially if some of them you can kind of see like that pool, it wasn't, didn't look new. It looked, you know, like 50 years old, you know, or 40, you know, so it wasn't, we weren't thinking we were just going to buy some new lawn chairs and some new chairs and be done with it. Mm -hmm. More to do there. Cool. Where do you want to go next? Um, I guess we'll talk about, you know, integrating the property management, um, which, you know, we had, we had interviewed, you know, a long list of property managers in the, you know, in the Phoenix Metro. Um, and you know, the one that we actually ended up going with, you know, they have thousands of units under management. They've conducted thousands of like unit interior renovations. So it's really nice because, Hey, we're, we're located in Chicago and, uh, we kind of need that fully integrated property management company who can conduct these renovations. We're not, you know, on the phone, like, uh, going back and forth between vendors and like trying to, you know, we're, we're in Chicago and they're in Phoenix. So it, it, it's, it's nice to have, you know, a property management company that does have that like construction and design team where they can conduct a lot of these, uh, renovations and, you know, take care of the property where, you know, a lot of it falls on their shoulders and they look to us for direction. Um, but when it comes time to like actually execute on things, like we have boots on the ground in Phoenix who can conduct these. Yeah. Cause if we were trying to oversee a contractor just on our own from here, it'd be like, a, it would be a disaster where you got to get 
someone local then to run it where you can't construction, you need to be there, you need to see it. So we're, you know, that's where actually how we ended up on the management company. It's called Cam Properties that we're using where we were touring another deal, the something blue, what was it, Arroyo? Or we were at a deal uh, in Phoenix that they managed and were renovating. And I've seen a lot of construction and I remember looking at this uh, laundry closet they were building out and I was just like, this is the nicest laundry closet I basically I've ever seen in an apartment building to be honest I mean I've seen mm-hmm. I guess nicer ones but those are in like you know million dollar homes basically <laughs> like for like a I've never I mean they replaced all the drywall mm-hmm. the connections were really good and then they had this breather valve on top for the of the venting of the drain in there and it was like this is the best laundry hookup install I've ever seen in my life well you should let's talk to these folks and that um that's how we got on them actually being in the market uh, and then, yeah, once you, we met him, we were yeah, super impressed with everything. Mm-hmm. Funny story, too. Actually, this week on Wednesday, we were talking to our, our regional. So I guess shout out to Crew uh, Johnston, where we were, our regional at CAM, where he was um, He was like, do you have a podcast? And, and I was, <laughs> you know, it's not something you just like tell people like, hey, nice to meet you, Crew. I just want to let you know I've got a podcast. Um, and I was like, yeah, I do. Like, how do you, you know, I was very curious how I heard about it. And I was actually really happy he was was watching some episodes and he said he found it on youtube but not uh not like searching for it, just like suggested video so i was like all right mm. now <laughs> so it's getting getting out there so um kind of funny so i was really happy to hear that where that's you know um uh, also funny that i guess maybe i shouldn't you know we should have it somewhere else where it's more obvious to find than if people working with us haven't even heard of it but <laughs> anyways cool want to talk about the closing and then let's let's wrap up yeah, sure. Um, so closing, you know, we we closed on back to back days with uh, Desert Palms, and um, so you know it was a lot going on, but we you know we maintain an internal checklist and made sure that everything was getting done properly. Um, you know, for the the settlement statement, um, you know, that's something that we'll always like recreate internally, um, not just solely rely on title or you know the attorneys to make sure that these numbers are correct, but. Basically, you know, we create line by line closing costs, lender costs, um, rent prorations, real estate tax prorations, security deposits, prepaid rents. And I'd say, you know, of the four deals we've closed in Phoenix, you know, probably three of them, you know, the prorations were off or the, the security deposits were off. So and it would have been like an unfavorable difference to us. So it's, it's really important that, you know, we, we do that work up front and make sure like, hey. And there's not five thousand dollars in security deposits. There's nine thousand. Right. And something too with these deals, there's a lot of numbers on the settlement statement, and a lot of times you don't get the settlement statement to maybe the day before closing. I bought plenty of deals where it's, you get it the day of closing, and yeah, you don't want to be calculating these things like kind of under like duress, like it's eleven o'clock on the closing day. Why are cutoff times one o'clock? How do these look? <laughs> you want to have calculated that, you know, the day before, you know, the earlier, the better. Mm-hmm. And then you can then when you get the rent prorations number, you just look at what you already calculated and go, uh, actually, I got something different. Here it is. And it's not or or it matches. And then you just spend like a minute looking at it where it's not some big, you know, rushed event. So mm-hmm. what else? Anything you learn on this closing or? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, something that you've said basically every closing now is you got to stay on top of everyone. You can't just assume that work is getting done because, you know, you'll there might be something that's been completed, like a document that uh, somebody signed and, you know, you ask where it is and then 
the the document finally gets sent um or you know um just talking with like title making sure we're like we're in good shape for closing like what else do we need to do um just like continuously following up to make sure that we're we're progressing because we've got deadlines to to meet and um you know if uh you know the closing is extended by a couple of days maybe that maybe you're backed up against you know your last day where you could get the deal closed so it's it's you know good to make sure that like everybody's progressing well and um you know one of the things that came up with this deal in particular particular um is that the seller needed to attain like these uh tax uh certifications where basically the city certified that these rental taxes were being paid um and this is something that the seller wasn't able to obtain on time and what we've done for our other deals because you know the the municipalities in phoenix are backed up with you know all these types of requests because there's a lot of deals trading there's a lot going on um there's a lot of you know new construction um so you know they were backed up so they couldn't get these tax certs um and normally we would have agreed to do like some type of holdback where it says you know we want to have we're going to hold back whatever five thousand dollars in proceeds until you give us these tax certifications um and if we don't receive receive them within 90 days like the five thousand dollars ours but if uh you know you do get them to us then that will release the five thousand from escrow um for whatever reason you know the seller they couldn't get them and they they didn't want to do any sort of holdback so um the broker actually agreed to like hold back some of their commission that they were earning um and you know i think initially we thought like okay that's fine but then you know at the end of the day we told them like you know we, we don't want to hold back any of your commission like you earned it and i think that's better for the long run because you, you don't want to mess with like the broker's commissions and like because that's that's their livelihood too because and it, it it wasn't necessarily like the broker's fault that the seller just wasn't agreeing to something that we had executed for you know our several other deals um so that and yeah and that was one thing and we needed to sort it out because we were trying to figure that out like the day of closing because our our attorneys had sent this holdback agreement you know a few days prior and we weren't making any progress and we were trying to figure out like what what's going on right and that's it's you know that's one of those decisions where there's like so many factors at play the seller didn't want to do a holdback because she's saying i paid it Mm -hmm. like i don't have a receipt but it's i paid it i don't want to hold money back i'm trying to and two also when you do holdbacks then it complicates your 1031 now that money didn't get exchanged and so then she's worried about that the you know the brokers it, it got to the point where like the broker's offering like his money just to get this thing finished but we're also looking at this as buyers as like it's you know i don't remember the exact time but it's it was after t- like noon it was after 12 and you know you gotta get these things you know across the finish line not by like 5 p.m because you want to a lot of times the lenders they don't send in their money till like all the documents are signed including including the settlement statement but okay, let's say we would have gone this route. Now we need to sign some sort of contract with the seller, us and the broker, get everyone to sign it. And then that's another signed document they need to fund. I guess get the money on the settlement statement too, coming out of the broker's fee. So it's more than just like, hey, let's just uh, throw caution to the wind here or something. This is like the person saying they're selling it. Uh, They already paid it. So we'll get some goodwill with the seller if we just let it go. 
same thing with the broker. We got a got got a lot of goodwill from him, I'm sure, where he agreed to do this. And also to me, it just it was to a point where it felt kind of ridiculous almost where now just to get to an agreement, like now the broker's gotta pay. Really, I felt like it should be one of uh, like either buyer or seller. And then also we're taking a risk as a buyer too now, letting this continue to drag on, where I think we were closing this on like the last day we could in the contract. Mm-hmm. So we keep messing around over like a couple thousand dollars or something, and then we um all of a sudden lose our 350,000 earnest money, you know? So that's, mm-hmm. you know, so we yeah, more like, you know, kind of like build goodwill, but also just like a risk reward thing where we could have burned up another two hours, just kind of trying to get that ironed out. And like, and kind of, I thought like for, for what, like she keeps saying I paid it and that's, and that's believable. There's things that, you know, we've paid where I'm sure if we need to get a receipt it's you know, from a city, that's not, you know, and that's not that fast. I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. So, Cool. Well, yeah, I think that's that's plenty on the closing. I think then let's, um, you know, just to bring it home then, like post-closing, you know, we're just cranking on our on our plan now. So we already have um, already have that sewer works done and we have a signed contract on the electrical that's starting. And then pool work, we just signed off on a contract on that. So that's that's happening and we're figuring out the in-unit renovation scope, you know, finalizing them. We had them uh, you know, 90% done, let's say, well, we're buying it. That's another thing where we got the, you need to pull permits for laundry. And so we had the engineers go through while we were under contract. So they're already working on their, uh, plans and everything for permits and what they need to submit. So we're, we're, we're cranking on this. So, and then, um, you know, a whole, we have one unit empty right now. So that's going to be our test unit. And, you know, one thing we'll need to figure out, this is like a super minor detail. So it might not even be worth mentioning, but you know, we, we want to add dishwashers in these too. some of these. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, adding a dishwasher. It's not just as simple as like, all right, here it is. Put it in because um, that's got to go under a counter. And then like the kitchens are already like are fully like laid out. So you we have to reconfigure these kitchens. And um, uh, so then that to add the dishwasher and have it look, you know, right where we want to have um, obviously a counter above it and cabinets above. So, so then what we're going to do, what we're doing now, we're waiting for permits is we're getting, that's like the last piece to decide. So we have um, actually cam also has someone who can do layouts. So they're going to lay out every kitchen, including a dishwasher and then a microwave above the, the range. Uh, Cause a lot of these didn't even have a microwave either. So then we're going to have a fully, you know, that's a, a fully amenitized kitchen here so that that'll be a lift to rents too but a lot of these minor things don't be afraid to try to figure them out really early because we're still working on buying the deal and while you're doing that i'm already talking to campbell let's get the engineers in and let's uh try to get some like standard pictures of every unit so then when mm-hmm. you say hey what do you want to do with the floors on unit five i just go pull up the pictures and go hey those are nice vinyl floors keep them you know, mm-hmm. instead of like, what are the floors? Okay, they're vinyl. What color? You know, where now we have everything, all the pictures we need, people working on plans, and we're we're off and going. So cool. Well, let's let's wrap it up there. You know, thanks again for being on, Evan. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Great. Nice. Well, yeah. This. Uh, yeah. So glad you guys were able to join us talking about this deal. I mean, this was a fun one to get done, and like I said, one that I kind of you know I went to close if it wasn't for for you know you really. So appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, it's going to be a good deal. All right, great. All right, well, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. 
Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities and the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.